Today's guest has written about midlife and the philosophy of it all, the philosophy of it all. I think we all know that midlife is the time in your life that you dread. It's proof you are over the hill and on a downward spiral. So what's the point of a discourse on the philosophy of midlife? We'll find out in just a minute. Hello, everyone. My name is Pamela Brewer. Welcome to this edition of Mind Talk. I am pleased to be joined by a professor of philosophy at MIT, Kieran Setcha. Kieran, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you are also the author, as I understand it, of Reasons Without Rationalism. You're also the author of Knowing Right from Wrong. And then, of course, there's the subject of today's conversation, Midlife, a Philosophical Guide, Philosophical Wisdom and Practical Advice for Overcoming the Problems of Mid-Age. Let's talk about that. Why, why talk about midlife? I mean, everybody knows it's a problem and nobody wants to be there, Yes. Well, it, it turns out that, yes, there's, there's a lot of evidence in social science that um, the shape of sort of life satisfaction takes the shape, has a kind of gently curving U-shape. So people start out pretty happy, pretty satisfied with their lives in their youth, kind of peaks around 20, and then it dips and dips, um, and it sort of bottoms out in the mid-40s. And then it actually rises again and ends higher in, in older age. So this, this is evidence from around the world from over 170 countries. And so it does look like that even if the, the sort of idea of midlife is a time of intense angst, maybe a little overblown, it really is true that midlife is a period in which people experience um, uh, a dip in their, their satisfaction with their lives. In fact, you said that by the 1980s, the idea of midlife and a midlife crisis was actually thriving. What was going on in the 80s to make it so clear, I'll put cl the word clear in quotes, so popular, if you will, that midlife and crisis belonged in the same sentence? Well, so the, the, it, interestingly, unlike most sort of cultural ideas, when you look at the history of the midlife crisis, it doesn't just fade into the murky past. There's an actual, it's, we can trace the origin of the, the, the phrase, at least, if not the, the actual thing itself, a 1965 essay by Canadian psychoanalyst Elliot Jacques called Death in the Midlife Crisis. And then it was in the 70s that um, social scientists and psychologists at Yale and UCLA were, were sort of documenting the midlife malaise. And then in 1976, Gail Shee published uh, his book Passages, Predictable Crises of Adult Life. And she was a journalist. She um, interviewed people at different stages of life. And I think that book, which sold 3 million copies, did a lot to sort of popularize the idea. So by the 1980s, there's sort of two things going on. One is that people are experiencing difficulties in midlife, and the other is that they now have a kind of language and uh, a stereotype that's become culturally popular in which to interpret and describe what's happening to them. Well, and you make it clear that it was also that the concept of a midlife crisis was kind of useful and that it was a terrific, well-accepted excuse, if you will, for what would otherwise have been considered completely unacceptable behavior. Well, that's true. So there's, the, there's been a lot of sort of um, pushback from in the, in the 90s, uh, by social scientists about how far this was really happening and how far 
it was just becoming a kind of cultural stereotype. So people were sort of buying into the cliche, maybe to excuse their own bad behavior, or maybe just because uh, they had heard of it. And so, um, yeah, the, the, the question of how, how prevalent it really was that people were having a genuine midlife crisis um, sort of came into question in, in the late 90s and 2000s. There was a, the MacArthur Foundation funded this enormous study called Midlife in the United States, um, and the results were published around 2000. And they found a much more mixed picture. I mean, they found people struggling in midlife, but also people experiencing midlife as a period of competence. So, so I think that the question of whether there really was a dip in happiness in midlife or whether there really was a midlife crisis was sort of remained um, uh, up in the air. And so the, the thing I mentioned a little earlier, this sort of U-curve data, that comes from work in the last 10 years by um, economists who work on happiness, David Blanchflower and Andrew Oswald. And that has been replicated a lot. So it looks like the current consensus is maybe the kind of cliche of, of um, uh, male crisis, buy a fast car, leave your wife. It's unclear what, how prevalent that is. But the idea that um, for men and women, midlife is, is harder does seem to, to hold up um, in the, the current kind of social scientific data. And although it's sort of a gentle dip, I, you know, the people describe this as, a, as the U-curve in happiness as sort of gentle. In fact, the dip between um, youth and, say, being 45 is roughly the dip in life satisfaction that you would associate with someone losing their job or getting a divorce. So huh. it's a, it's, there's a really significant difference in how people, how happy people are with their lives in their um, in midlife and in youth and old age. So I, I think that the, the truth behind the, the cliche it lies in that sort of U-curve data, the sense that um, even if you don't have a, an extreme crisis, uh, if you feel like midlife is particularly difficult, you're not alone and you're probably not wrong. You know, I was okay with you're probably not alone, but when you add you're probably not wrong, I'm sure there are people who are saying, gee, thanks, I, I really needed that information. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I think it, it's, it's sort of in a way reassuring just to see that this, that this sense um, of, of difficulty is not um, a sort of illusion. It, it really is it's pervasive. And that the quite, I mean, obviously, that doesn't mean that you should just accept it. And part of the reason why I wrote the book was to try and think through why it might be that at midlife people, including myself, were having having um, this sense of of difficulty with life, and to think through what kinds of um, strategies there might be for adjusting to midlife and coping with it. You know, it, it, it's interesting. I, I'm looking at the the cover uh, of um, your book, Midlife: A Philosophical Guide, and it's it's an interesting visual. I mean, it's a glass. And it's half full. On the other hand, if depending on how you look at it, the the it, it's not really half full. It's uh, maybe a little less than half full. It's as though there's so much more after midlife than before. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it actually, has, I should uh, I want to credit the designer Amanda Weiss. I think. Uh, did a beautiful job with the cover of the book. So yeah, it has this, this sort of glass half full, maybe not quite half full design that, that I think is very, um, very suggestive. Yeah, no, I think that's right. So I, I think um, uh, in terms of the actual sort of 
years of life, people, it, it could often feel like you're on the, the downward slope or that somehow, I think this is partly to do with the structure of people's lives, that, that sort of the big projects and achievements um, that you set out towards or imagine in your youth, often around, you know, 40, 50, you realize either you've achieved them and you're wondering what next, or you won't achieve them. And so there's a sense of, of sort of emptiness or like, what, what, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And, and um, I do think it's, it's good to, to recognize that um, there is a lot of time left at midlife and that, that thinking about how to um, appreciate and, and adapt to that time is, is really important. Would you say that the actual age range for midlife in today's world is different from what it was sometime in the past? It does seem to have shifted, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it's striking that in the, the, the essay I mentioned by Elliot Jacques, Death in the Midlife Crisis, um, when he originated this idea, what he saw was patients who were um, sort of in their mid-30s, maybe 37, having a kind of malaise in their lives, despite being outwardly successful, they had the sense that you described earlier exactly of having sort of reached the crest of the hill and sort of looking down towards the grave. And I think um, nowadays it's, it's much more, I think people would think of 37 as pretty young to describe yourself as middle-aged or midlife. Um, and so I think that the period has probably shifted more so that people think in terms of 40s at the earliest, but 50s especially as the as the period in which people are in midlife and middle age. Um, so people are sort of extending that their youthfulness earlier on. But there's this sort of a feedback loop here where I think part of what's going on is that people are are wary of becoming middle aged and wary of aging, and so the the pressure to remain youthful uh, exerts itself um, longer in people's lives. So that the kind of pressure when you're in your 30s to try to remain as vivacious as you were in your 20s is very strong. And so that that's sort of pushing back the age uh, at which people are willing to describe themselves as, as midlife or middle-aged. Um, at least in general, I think, you know, I, I felt like by the time I was 35, I was, uh, my, my mental age was, was middle-aged and I was happy to, to embrace that label. But yeah, I, I think that the, um, the, the age range has, has, been, has been shifting um, upward. several male authors um, who suggested that middle age uh, is a period of lost opportunity, frustrated longing, and oppressive social complaint. That really, constraint rather, I'm sorry, oppressive social constraint. That just sounds dreadful. You know, it's almost like who would want to get there, and once you got there, you just weren't going to survive it. Well, I do think that this sort of a, uh, a challenge about midlife um, that I try to, to sort of interrogate in, in that part of the book is this: there is a sense of missing out. And I think in a way, it, it's really pretty pervasive. So the, the novelists I talk about there are mostly men, but I think everyone who has a, uh, 
everyone ex- at a certain point in life ex- sort of experiences the, the limitations of their options. And even if you had options, even if you had a range of things you could do with your life, you sort of realize in midlife or maybe earlier, but you realize at least in midlife that there are lots of things you might have wanted to do with your life that you're not really going to get to do. And so there's this sense that um, that just comes out of the fact that we each have only one life to lead, that uh, there's no way we're going to be able to contain in our one life all of the things we really value or really care about. So in the book, I talk a little bit about myself and, and the fact that you know, when I was young, I thought maybe I wanted to be a poet or maybe I wanted to be a doctor and help people. And, and uh, you know, as my father would say, a real doctor, not a not a professor uh, and go out and, and um, save people, save lives. And it's not that I'm unhappy in a way with with where I've ended up. I mean, I'm incredibly fortunate to have the kind of job I have. But that's part of the point that even if you're incredibly fortunate, even if things go pretty well and you end up with the kind of career that you hope to have, even then there's this inevitable sense that you've missed out on, on other lives you could have lived. And then there's a sort of sense of constraint that, that once, you're, once you're locked into a career, it's very hard. Um, it's possible sometimes, but it's very difficult to say, oh, I'll just go back and, and sort of start from scratch. Because if you're like me or like many people, you have a family and you have a mortgage and you have um, uh, bills to pay and, and you, you, there's sort of a constraints on what you can do that make it easy to look back at youth and, and the time before you were you had to pick what you were going to do and your, your, before your life was so constrained with a sense of real nostalgia. And I think that problem is, um, uh, is one that just comes in a way out of the structure of, of life, the structure of people's careers and the structure of, of, of just the passage of time. You, you say, and this was an interesting point, um, that there is one can find consolation in, in the fact that the quote unquote missing out is a side effect of the richness of human life. And I thought that was a really interesting perspective. Um, you can't really miss out if there's nothing to miss out on. And so clearly we have many things available to us. Um, that that we sometimes are able to pick and choose from, but that there is much potentially available. Yeah, so I think this was something that was helpful to me. And so, it, it's, so in general, what the book attempts to do is is a kind of abstract cognitive therapy, a lot of it. So t- taking emotional responses to life that people have, especially around midlife, and trying to think through the thoughts behind them. And unlike the kind of cognitive therapy in which it's sort of thinking about your parents uh, that's specific to you, it's sort of thinking through the general ideas about value and time and human possibility. So that's why the the philosophy comes in. And in this case, I think um, there's a kind of way of thinking about the inevitability of missing out that makes you realize it's, while in one way regrettable, um, in another way, it's, it's not something you should wish away because... And if the, the inevitability of missing out is a side effect of something really good, namely that there are so many different valuable things that the world offers to us as possibilities or at least conceivable possibilities and that we are able to appreciate so many of them. So one way to see this is if you try to imagine what your life would have to be like for missing out not to be inevitable, you would have to either impoverish the world so that they're really weren't many things to care about, but only one, or impoverish yourself so that you only care about one thing. But no one really wants that. No one wants to be limited or or sort of uh, uh, confined in those ways. So 
I think the ultimate thing is attitude to take here is sort of ambivalent, but there's a, there's something it's a, a worst bittersweet to think about missing out because uh, it, it's a side effect of your capacity, our capacity to appreciate and value so many different things in the world, and that's a capacity that we should really celebrate. Um, and that, at least for me, has been has been helpful in thinking about about my own life. Like it's not as if I would rather be unable to appreciate. Um, the value of being a doctor and saving people's lives in order to not feel like I really missed out on something and not living that life. That would be, that would be a kind of impoverishment that I don't, I don't wish for. Um, and I do think, yeah, that's, that's a, a different kind of way of thinking about the phenomenon of missing out that puts it in a different perspective that might be, might be helpful. What is your sense of the impact of race and class on the ability to shift that thought that says midlife is, you know, the the beginning of the end of the end, um, to really being able to embrace the concept of the richness of life. Do, do you have a sense that race and class can can intersect with that and have an impact one way or the other? Definitely, yes. So, I mean, I, I don't um, have at my fingertips sort of the, the, the social science of this. It's definitely true that when people have studied um, the phenomenon of the midlife crisis, it shows up um, a little more among affluent people than among people who are less affluent, uh, and that obviously correlates with race in, in uh, places like the U.S. So, um, and I think it sort of makes sense that insofar as if we focus on the aspect of this experience that involves the narrowing of options and the sense of missing out on options that you had earlier, that, does, that sense does depend on whether you had those options earlier. So I think the experience of having missed out on options at midlife um, is, is an experience that is, is more particular to people who, whose options were, were richer. Um, in youth, so I think that this is one aspect of the the sort of midlife malaise that is is class and race sensitive. Um, I think others in in the it, there are I mean this sort of U curve in happiness in which people tend to be less happy around midlife shows up across class and across race and across um, men and women. So that the I think there are other aspects of the midlife experience that are difficult that are that are more pervasive and more more general than this. But I think you're, what you're pointing to, is that I think, is that this is one of the, the features of the midlife experience that is a little bit of a first-world problem. And, and the other thing that I would think would impact on one's ability to really accept the fact of the richness of the options of human life would be their religious or spiritual views um, which may even transcend race or class. I, I don't know. That's very interesting. I mean, it's it's um, there are aspects of the of the the book in which I it, which are probably resonant with with um, religious perspectives. And but it's true that I'm not myself religious, so I feel like that there's a sort of way in which um, my own sort of personal sense of those of of the problems and how to deal with them. It is less engaged with the role of religion than it is than it would be for someone who is religious, and I can see that making a making a very big difference. I mean that the 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 idea I think of of values in life that are more than just the values of um, meeting basic needs and getting life going. The idea that there are things that are bigger than that and things that are more important than that, and also that the idea that there are values that are not just about um, 
completing the next project, but have a have a, a kind of more imminent quality that I think people often get both out of their, their sort of religious um, thinking, but also religious uh, communities. I think those are, are instances of, of kinds of value in life that I, I think are somewhat resistant to this, this sort of midlife malaise and probably do play a big role for many people in, in giving them a sense of meaning in life um, around middle age that doesn't seem um, vulnerable to the kinds of problems that afflict career ambition or um, hopes one might have had for one's personal relationships or having children or things like that, that there's a sense of something, um, the sense that that's not all there is. Karen, you reference uh, a novel by David Nobbs, um, the story of Reginald Perrin. Would you share that with the audience? Yes, sure. No, this is a, uh, actually it's a novel that um, was made into a sitcom that was shown on British TV when I was when I was a kid, um, and that, that my family watched in reruns and and loved. It's basically a story about a guy who um, has a kind of he works in an office at Sunshine Desserts, and he has his he commutes to work every day, and he has this sort of repetitive drone-like existence. And one day he just decides I can't stand this anymore, uh, and he he leaves the office, fakes his own death by leaving his clothes on the beach and pretending to drown, uh, and then starts a new life. Um, but he realizes that what he hated, in, in effect, was the social constraint, the sense that he had no option. He didn't actually want to leave his wife. And so he, he comes back and sort of uh, remarries his wife and this new guys and, then start, and gets back his old job. And uh, so the, the, the comedy is both the journey of getting back, but also afterwards, he's sort of living his old life, but it's all been subtly transformed by this sense that um, it's now his choice rather than uh, something that he has no control over. And I think that's a, a really interesting kind of parable of the way in which um, often we feel constrained in what we're doing. And sometimes that's because it really is a bad choice for us. We really should be doing something else. But there's also just the sheer fact of not of feeling like you don't have a choice anymore. I think people want to feel like in their career, they're doing it because they want to do it, because it, it's their autonomous decision, not because, um, as I mentioned before, like they have to pay the bills and there's just no way to change their life. And I think that the Reggie Perrin story, um, it's both very funny and very uh, brilliant in, in sort of exploring that idea about life. You know, it makes me wonder if we, at the outset, taught ourselves and our children uh, a different way to think about midlife and aging in general, and and taught uh, to to really think about and embrace options early on, that we might just as a nation have a very different view of what midlife in fact is. The comment uh, that one protests because not to protest would be too humiliating, too diminishing, too deadly, uh, is an interesting one in and of itself. But then I think about the people who we actually see protesting, and they really do run the age range from the young adults uh, well, certainly children, but the children are often coming with their parents, but from young adults to well into seniorhood citizens. 
and they can all come together and protest around a particular issue. So in that instance, maybe age doesn't really matter. That's really interesting. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right that this might be a, a, an aspect of, of people's lives in which the the sense of wanting to save the present moment, wanting to, wanting to be connected with other people and to be doing something now um, isn't a specifically midlife issue. It's it's a kind of desire that people have, whether they're you know teenagers whose f- friends might be um, undocumented immigrants or or older people who are who are um, uh, concerned about you know healthcare and what the future that's going to be in the U.S. And I think the, these those kinds of um, protests can sort of bring people together in those ways in the present moment in a way that's very powerful. The fear of, um, as we were saying earlier, the fear, if you will, of of aging, of of reaching midlife. If we were to really change the way we taught our children and taught ourselves and thought about aging in general, and you had a magic wand that worked, what, uh-huh. what would be different? That's a great question. I mean, that's a, the, 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 it's a great question, partly because the answer is so many things. But um, I do think that the, the um, I actually think that the, the idea of mindfulness and, and living in the present, which I, I think, as I said, I used to roll my eyes at this, but I feel increasingly that um, it is important. And partly through writing and working on the book, sort of felt like it, I had a, a philosophical sense of why it works and what it means and why it matters. I think that is something that um, people often wait till midlife to make the transition of thinking, you know, I've been looking forward all the time and now I need to, you know, I need to somehow figure out what I'm doing now and, and how to value that. And I don't, I think it would be really amazing if, if um, th- that idea and the, the techniques for sort of really developing it was something that people had throughout their whole lives that was not in in the U.S. It wasn't just something that some people come to um, in middle age. The idea of thinking about midlife before you get there, um, I, I think is really an important piece of all of this. And as we close out today, I would just simply like to remind the listeners of what we have been talking about with Kieran Setio, which is Midlife, a Philosophical Guide, Philosophical Wisdom and Practical Advice for Overcoming the Problems of Mid-Age. Actually, if I had a magic wand that works, I'd kind of like to see this in grade schools going up through uh, you know, extended educational opportunities because I think it really would change how we think about ourselves in the moment and in the future. Thank you very much uh, for creating Midlife, a philosophical guide, and for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. Folks, thank you as well for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational public service, and it is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. It's available to you on demand by going to mindtalk.org, M Y N D. 
T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. You can also download the Mind Talk app from iTunes or Google Play. There are lots of places where you can hear it. If you'd like to know, go to the Mind Talk website and check it out or send an email to me, Pamela, P-A-M-E-L-A at mindtalk.org. Again, that's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. And remember always, if it's unacceptable, then it's unacceptable. You take care. Thank you.